This podcast is brought to you by Podcast Nation. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Safflower oil, canola oil, soybean oil, these lower LDL quite powerfully, even relative to olive oil, whereas higher saturated fat oils like coconut oil tend to raise LDL. Canola oil is incredibly powerful for lipid lowering and it has such a bad rap. Someone needs to do new PR for canola oil because it can be incredibly powerful in lipid lowering and it's high in this really heart healthy polyunsaturated fat. Welcome to Wellness, Fact versus Fiction. I'm Dr. Danielle Bellardo, and I'm a cardiologist who loves evidence-based medicine and nutrition science. But as a millennial, I've watched endless wellness fads take over social media. It's my mission to get to the bottom of things by bringing on the top expert physicians and scientists to help us determine what is fact versus fiction when it comes to your health. It's time to leave the pseudoscience behind and become empowered when it comes to our wellness. Hey everyone, welcome back to Wellness Fact versus Fiction. This week we are on episode three of our cholesterol and lipid series. You made it through the really tough episodes. Now onto the fun stuff. Today we're going to talk about diet, nutrition, and blood lipids. If you haven't listened to the first two episodes of this cholesterol series yet, now is the time to check them out first. I promise they'll help you better understand the terminology, the pathways of metabolism, and understand why certain foods impact our lipids more than others. Okay, so... Diet and blood lipids, this is actually one of the most robust areas of nutrition science with studies dating back over 100 years. The evolution of nutrition science, where we've gone from early animal experiments to human feeding experiments, combining that with prospective cohort data and randomized controlled trials and looking at our current guidelines that are informed by systematic reviews of all these lines of evidence have come so far. At this point in nutrition science, we're fortunate enough to have numerous randomized controlled trials examining surrogate outcomes and hard endpoints, prospective cohort studies allowing us to evaluate the impact of diet on blood lipids, and what this means for specific cardiovascular endpoints. Remember, it's always important to know and keep in mind that no one meal in one dose will cause disease. So even though many of the studies we discuss are going to deep dive into single nutrients, you have to remember that single nutrients are always studied in the context of an overall background dietary pattern. We always want to focus on overall dietary patterns, and this is emphasized in most of the guidelines, while optimizing individual nutrients for blood lipid management. It's also important to note that a team approach is crucial for success. If you're able to see a registered dietitian, it can be incredibly impactful in making dietary changes that are sustainable for you. I have the honor of working with an incredible registered dietitian who's also a nutrition scientist, Kevin Klatt, who you all know from our podcast. He works with our patients and does teledietetics, and I've seen firsthand how impactful working with an RD can be for our patients. He's also a nutrition and lipids wizard, and a lot of what we'll be talking about today are things I've learned from him. 
It's also important to note that regardless of your genetics, family history, or personal history, dietary changes can always make some impact on your lipids. But that being said, dietary changes are not always enough. Sometimes we need guideline-directed medical therapy in addition to dietary changes to optimize a patient's cholesterol and risk for atherosclerosis. So as you'll learn in this episode, although diet can be incredibly powerful, it doesn't have to be a binary choice of diet versus medication. For some individuals, they'll do best with both. And also remember, even dietary changes, they don't have to be all or nothing. Small changes can add up and make a big difference. Give yourself some grace. We're always looking toward dietary changes in the context of improving the overall healthfulness of a dietary pattern. And last but not least... It's important to remind you that in this episode, as with all episodes of our podcast, the information provided is for educational purposes only and does not substitute for professional medical advice. As always, consult your own medical professional, registered dietitian, or healthcare provider for medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. But I do hope this episode empowers you to better understand cholesterol, nutrition, and have a more productive conversation about prevention with your healthcare provider. Okay, let's get into the science. So we're going to discuss different evidence types and how they contribute to our understanding of dietary lipid lowering. Controlled feeding trials, which are typically highly controlled but shorter in duration, in addition to things like outpatient diet assignment trials or prospective cohort studies or longer duration randomized controlled trials. You got to keep in mind when we discuss nutrition science that there's no placebo for foods or macronutrients. So be mindful of comparator groups. You should always be thinking when we discuss certain nutrient, well, compared to what? So some of the big macronutrient impacts on lipids that we do know from a lot of the nutrition science are things like saturated fatty acids, like lauric, palmitic acid, rich fats. These can increase LDL cholesterol. Monounsaturated fatty acids can reduce LDL cholesterol. Linoleic acid, rich polyunsaturated fatty acids, so the omega-6 series, these can significantly lower LDL. Carbohydrates, foods with viscous fiber content can also lower LDL cholesterol, but refined carbohydrates can raise triglycerides. EPA and DHA-rich polyunsaturated fatty acids, this is more of the omega-3 series, these can typically lower triglycerides. Steric acid-rich saturated fats, like sometimes you see in chocolate, can be relatively neutral impact on LDLC and is thought to rapidly metabolize to an unsaturated fatty acid. Viscous fibers can lower your cholesterol, same with plant sterols. Unfiltered coffee can slightly raise LDL cholesterol. There are compounds in unfiltered coffee that can raise LDLC. Liquid sugars high in fructose, these can raise triglycerides. And polyphenols and isoflavins in high intakes can modestly lower LDL cholesterol. These are some of the top macronutrient lipid tips that I've got from Kevin Klatt. And now we're going to be diving into a bunch of different studies. And some of these are my favorite studies, and you've heard me talk about them before. So to note, I am going to be sharing an exorbitant amount of studies during this episode. And to find the citations that I'm discussing, check out our Wellness Fact versus Fiction Instagram and Journal Club, which is linked in our show notes. Okay, let's start with saturated fat studies. So 
Ronald Mensick did a well-known systematic review and regression analysis published in 2016 on saturated fat and other macronutrients on serum lipids and lipoproteins. I discuss this important paper in every talk I give, so this may sound familiar to you if you've seen me present at any academic medical conferences before. But it's an incredibly robust and important paper, so let's dig in. This was a meta-analysis of 395 published metabolic board experiments, the effects of various dietary lipids on blood cholesterol. And it clearly demonstrated how saturated fat increases LDL cholesterol. It ultimately looked at 84 studies. 74 studies were used to examine the effect of a mixture of saturated fatty acids, cis monounsaturated fatty acids, and cis polyunsaturated fatty acids on serum lipid and lipoproteins. The remaining 10 studies plus 42 of the 74 studies used to assess the classes of fatty acids were used to estimate the effects of individual saturated fatty acids on lipids and lipoproteins. So in general, he looked at when 1% of energy in the diet from saturated fat is replaced isocalorically, meaning there was no increase in calories, calories stayed the same. So when 1% of energy in the diet from saturated fatty acids is replaced isocalorically by carbohydrates, MUFAs, which is monounsaturated fat, or PUFAs, which is polyunsaturated fat, what happens? When you replace saturated fat for carbs, MUFAs, or PUFAs, you see a drop in LDL cholesterol. But by far, the greatest drop of LDL cholesterol in ApoB is when you're substituting saturated fat for linoleic acid-rich PUFAs. These more favorably drop LDL cholesterol without raising triglycerides the way certain carbs can. And whether you replace saturated fat for carbohydrates, MUFAs, or PUFAs, or all of these replacements, they all reduce ApoB. Again, in a descending kind of order, with the highest drop in ApoB being when you substitute saturated fat for polyunsaturated fat and then saturated fat for monounsaturated fat. And last but still significant is when you substitute saturated fat for carbs. You can see in his research and statistics that he completed what are called univariate models of saturated fat. So we're replacing saturated fat with either MUFAs, PUFAs, or carbohydrate. In these metabolic war trials, the issue is the saturated fat is replacing other things. So the question then becomes, well, what's the effect of saturated fat alone on increasing LDLC versus how much is that because of what you're replacing it with? Is it the carbs? Is it the PUFAs? Is it the MUFAs? What is it? So to answer this, Mensik did a regression analysis. The purpose of this regression analysis was to account for the differences in the metabolic ward trials. And the purpose was essentially to have equations to control out for those factors and give you the predicted and observed LDL cholesterol based strictly on saturated fat intake. And he did all of this by taking into account all of those things into what's called the Mensik equations. Through this regression analysis, he was able to demonstrate the relationship between saturated fat intake and LDL cholesterol was linear. And the more saturated fat you eat, the higher your LDL cholesterol. Now, this likely changes over higher and higher amounts of saturated fat intake. But generally, this holds with general eating and with how your LDL cholesterol can respond to saturated fat. Well, what other lines of evidence do we have to support this? It turns out observational cohorts with hard endpoints are broadly consistent with randomized controlled trials with surrogate outcomes. 
in a paper published in 2016 by Walter Willett and his team. And remember, you can find all the papers we discussed today on our Instagram this week. In this paper, their team evaluated the nurse's health study and the health professional's follow-up study, the two major prospective cohorts at Harvard. And although they have their limitations, they also have their strengths, including repeated dietary assessment measurements and multiple provisions of the food frequency questionnaires. In this study, you can see pretty consistently, if you look at the pooled analysis, that individual replacement of saturated fatty acids with polyunsaturated fatty acids lowers cardiovascular risk the most. MUFA replacing saturated fat and whole grains replacing saturated fat demonstrates a modest reduction in cardiovascular risk. Additionally, this study showed plant protein when it's replacing saturated fat also showed a reduction in cardiovascular risk. And saturated fat is a relevant topic, and you may be wondering why. Well, there's many foods that are high in saturated fat that, if reduced, can favorably reduce one's cardiovascular risk. This includes many types of meat, high-fat dairy such as butter, ghee, cheese, ice creams, processed meats like bacon, sausages, cured meats like salami, chorizo, pancetta, certain pastries, cakes, processed foods, and even coconut oil and palm oil, just to name a few. The previous AHA guidelines recommended aiming to drop saturated fat intake as low as 5 to 6% of total calories to optimize cardiovascular risk. Our 2019 ACC AHA primary prevention guidelines reiterated this. There's a class one recommendation to eat a diet emphasizing the intake of vegetables, fruits, legumes, nuts, whole grains, and fish if you eat animal products to decrease your atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease risk. There's also a class 2A recommendation to replace saturated fat with dietary mono and polyunsaturated fat. So what is the actual mechanism by which saturated fat so consistently raises LDL cholesterol and APOB? So it's believed that it turns out that saturated fat induces downregulation of LDL receptors, which you learned all about last episode. So if you missed part two of the cholesterol series, head back and listen to it now, then jump back into this episode with us. So increased saturated fat intake, this induces downregulation of LDL receptors on your liver. Less LDL receptors clearing your plasma of LDL particles means higher LDL cholesterol as a result. Additionally, in some cases, excess saturated fat actually increases de novo cholesterol synthesis, which is one of the reasons LDL receptor expression, which is mediated by SREBP2C, decreases and can even impact LDL receptor binding. So dietary saturated fat often is what drives endogenous cellular cholesterol synthesis and is a reason why LDL cholesterol and LDLP often goes up really high on a high saturated fat ketogenic or carnivore diet. And if you're wondering, well, on the other hand, why does polyunsaturated fat lower LDL cholesterol? It's believed that replacing saturated fat with polyunsaturated fat increases LDL receptor activity and decreases VLDL secretion. So although this next study was not a specific lipid trial, it's really fascinating and worth discussing because I'd love to explain to you guys just how quickly a diet can change your lipids. So my friend Kevin Hall, who is head of a billion important research studies at the NIH, he did this incredible NIH metabolic ward trial, which, by the way, is the tightest control you can have in any trial. 
individuals were brought to the NIH metabolic ward for 14 days. These participants who volunteered for this study, they had to live at the NIH and they had every aspect of metabolism monitored continuously for 14 days. This was a randomized crossover trial comparing an animal-based low-carb diet with non-starchy vegetables. It was 10% carbs, 75% fat, and it was higher in saturated fat and lower in fiber. They compared that versus a low-fat, 100% plant-based diet that was 10% fat, 75% carbohydrates, and was lower in saturated fat and higher in fiber. This was an ad libitum study, meaning participants could eat as much or as little as they wanted. And what did they find? Well, most pertinent to this podcast episode is the lipid results. So on average, everyone's total cholesterol at baseline was 162.5. On two weeks of the low-carb animal-based diet, their total cholesterol remained unchanged, around 161. But just two weeks on the low-fat plant-based diet, which was low in saturated fat and higher in fiber, just 14 days, their total cholesterol plummeted over 40 points, down to 120. The average of everyone's baseline LDL cholesterol was about 87.9. After two weeks on the low-carb, high-fat diet, this went up to 92.4. And after just two weeks on the low-fat plant-based diet, their LDL dropped from 87.9 down all the way to 64.7 in just two weeks. Their APOB at baseline was 73.5. After two weeks on the low-carb, high-fat diet, it went up to 77.1. And in just two weeks on the low-fat plant-based diet, their APOB dropped from 73.5 down to 57.5. Incredible. In 14 days. I will admit I'm fortunate to see this in my practice with my patients regularly. Technically, this should surprise no one because we know that saturated fat intake and LDL cholesterol have a well-established linear relationship, which is demonstrated in numerous metabolic ward trials that we just discussed. And animal foods are naturally higher in saturated fat, and the low-fat plant-based diet was lower in saturated fat and higher in fiber, both which are a formula for lowering your LDL cholesterol and ApoB. The saturated fat intake on the low-carb diet was about 24.8 grams per 1,000 calories. And the saturated fat on the low-fat plant-based diet in this trial was 2.2 grams per 1,000 calories. So what does this all mean? Well, this trial wasn't designed to study for lipids or various other measures. Its main purpose was to look at ad libitum feeding. But the reason why I'm bringing up lipids is because I just wanted you to understand how quickly in 14 days your cholesterol can change. Low-fat plant-based diets, due to being lower in saturated fat and higher in fiber, they clearly can lower your LDL cholesterol and your APOB, which is incredibly important for cardiovascular disease risk. High-fat, low-carb, animal-based diets can increase your LDL cholesterol, which can increase your risk for cardiovascular disease. Additionally, a rise in postprandial triglycerides was seen in the low-carb arm, and this has also been associated with increased cardiovascular mortality. So what do I think? Well, a low-fat plant-based diet is probably superior to an animal-based low-carb diet, obviously, for cardiovascular health. But I do think that it misses the mark by cutting out healthful plant-based unsaturated fat, like polyunsaturated fat, which can actually lower your LDL cholesterol even more from the mechanisms we already discussed. And they also limit monounsaturated fat. A plant-based diet with moderate fat from unsaturated fat, like PUFAs and MUFAs, and with a good amount of protein, 
may also see improvements in glucose variability and triglycerides as well. Low-fat plant-based diets sometimes miss the mark with too low of protein as well. But overall, what does it mean? You don't need to choose one or the other, but you can make a low-carb diet more heart-friendly by adding more of these healthy fats like polyunsaturated and monounsaturated fat and replacing some of the saturated fat with these healthier unsaturated fats. You can make a low-carb diet healthier by increasing the amount of fiber you take and eating high-fiber fruits and vegetables. Additionally, a low-fat plant-based diet, you can probably make that even healthier by making sure you're getting some heart-healthy plant-based fats like poly and monounsaturated fats and making sure you're getting enough plant protein. Either way, you don't have to go all or none for all of them. There's many ways to modify a diet that works for you to make it more heart healthy. Okay, well, next up, what about oils? Which ones are better for your lipids? Which may be worse? It can be all incredibly confusing. A network meta-analysis looking at all of the different oil sources that have been tested in individual trials, they looked at various different oils and compared them to olive oil. To no one's surprise, butter and lard increased LDL significantly comparative to olive oil. A lot of the confidence intervals in this analysis do cross one, and we don't always have the best power from these individual studies. But in general, you see omega-6 linoleic acid-rich pupas like safflower oil, canola oil, soybean oil, these lower LDL quite powerfully, even relative to olive oil, whereas higher saturated fat oils like coconut oil tend to raise LDL. Canola oil is incredibly powerful for lipid lowering, and it has such a bad rap. Someone needs to do new PR for canola oil because it can be incredibly powerful in lipid lowering, and it's high in this really heart-healthy polyunsaturated fat. So substituting butter, ghee, or lard for healthier options such as olive oil or canola oil, for example, this can help reduce your LDL cholesterol and subsequently reduce cardiovascular risk. Another big source of discussion is whether or not fermented dairy like cheese impacts lipids. So another study published in AJCN in 2017, it was a randomized controlled trial which compared the impact of saturated fatty acids from cheese and butter on cardiometabolic risk factors. They compared butter versus cheese versus MUFA versus PUFAs versus carbohydrate. And what they found was that although cheese didn't raise LDL quite as much as butter, it was still evident that it raised LDL and ApoB much more than mono and polyunsaturated fat and carbohydrate. Well, how important is fiber? If you follow me on social media or if you're one of my patients, you probably are sick of hearing me talk about fiber, but I'm going to keep talking about it because it's so important. <laughs> Another dietary trial evaluating aggressive cholesterol lowering was a trial looking at something called the Simeon diet. There were three diets tested in this study. They compared a low-fat therapeutic diet versus a starch diet versus a very high vegetable diet. The interesting thing is that these three diets were all similar in calories, protein, and all three had similar amounts of saturated fat by energy as well. The biggest difference in these diets was that the vegetable-heavy diet contained 55 grams of fiber per 1,000 calories eaten. So in this study where there was an average of about 2,700 calories eaten, individuals in the vegetable-heavy arm were getting almost 150 grams of fiber daily. And in addition to having no dietary cholesterol, there was a high amount of phytosterols. The results were astounding. 
all components of this diet helped reduce LDL cholesterol 30% from baseline. And this is incredibly clinically significant. So how does fiber decrease your cholesterol, you might be wondering? Well, again, super important that you listen to episode two to understand lipid metabolism. And if you did, then this will make a lot of sense to you. Viscous fiber can bind cholesterol in your gut so it can't be absorbed. So whether it's endogenous cholesterol, if you remember from last episode, it's made in your liver into bile and released in your small intestine for digestion, or whether it's dietary cholesterol you're eating, viscous fiber can bind cholesterol and prevent its absorption back into what's called enterohepatic circulation. So what is fiber? Well, let's start with the fact that fiber only exists in plant foods. Animal products do not contain fiber. So you can only get fiber from plants. Viscous fiber is a type of soluble fiber in plant foods. It forms a gel and it isn't absorbed by your gut. The National Lipid Association recommends eating broadly at least 30 grams of fiber per day with at least 5 to 10 grams of viscous fiber daily. And with this, you can expect to lower your LDL cholesterol by upwards of 11 points. But we don't have data demonstrating there's an up at limit of fiber. I personally eat 90 grams of fiber per day and my LDL cholesterol is really low. Then again, I'm vegan, so plants are the mainstay of my diet. So how much fiber should you individually aim for? It's really up to you, your physician and your dietitian. For my patients who are looking for aggressive lipid lowering through diet, I often see success when they gradually increase their fiber intake about three to five grams per day, slowly as tolerated, and target 60 grams of fiber daily. A slower increase in fiber intake can help to avoid some GI issues like bloating. But then again, not everyone will want to, will need to, or can eat 60 grams of fiber a day. Not everyone's looking for drastic lipid lowering through diet. So the amount of fiber you eat and tolerate, this should be individualized with you and your physician and your registered dietitian. But I think the NLA recommendation of a minimum of 30 grams per day is a safe bet. Some examples of foods with viscous fiber, these are examples from the NLA. And of course, it's not limited to just what I'm going to give you, but I'm just going to give you a few examples from the NLA just so you can have an idea. So barley, brown rice, oatmeal, oat bran, quinoa, black eyed peas, chickpeas, lentils, split peas, black beans, soybeans, kidney beans, lima, navy beans, pinto beans, some foods with healthy fats and viscous fiber are like avocado, chia seeds, flax seeds, sunflower seeds, almonds, walnuts. Um, some vegetables with viscous fiber and higher amounts is broccoli, cauliflower, carrots, Brussels sprouts, cabbage, green beans, okra, parsnips, turnips, and lots of different fruits like medium sized apple has one to three grams of viscous fiber, bananas, orange, peaches, pears, apricots, plums, figs, blackberries, raspberries, strawberries. Berries are super high in fiber. There's more than just that that exists. These are just a few recommendations from the NLA, but just trying to add some of these higher viscous fiber foods into your diet can help. Another trial that looked at increasing viscous fiber and its impact on LDL cholesterol is called the portfolio diet. So the portfolio diet focused on increasing viscous fibers, soy, plant sterols, nuts, and seeds as a source of unsaturated fatty acids. In one study, they compared how a routine portfolio diet compared to a more intensive portfolio diet and compared them with a controlled diet. And as you can guess, both the portfolio diet 
and the more intensive portfolio diet both led to a substantial drop in LDL cholesterol. On average, the LDL starting was 170 in all groups. And by the 12-week point, there was over a 15% drop in LDL in the intensive portfolio group, with the LDL dropping below 140. So now, what about dietary cholesterol? There's so much confusion about how dietary cholesterol impacts lipids. The AHA 2019 scientific statement on dietary cholesterol and cardiovascular disease risk really gave us some broad guidelines for dietary cholesterol intake. They said a healthy dietary pattern is inherently low, so less than 300 milligrams per day in cholesterol regardless. So overall observational studies don't show a convincing relationship between dietary cholesterol and most cardiovascular disease outcomes, but increased risk of coronary heart disease is actually observed in those with type 2 diabetes. Interestingly enough, interventional studies using very high cholesterol intakes can increase LDL cholesterol. So let's dive deep into this topic. Dietary cholesterol's determination on serum cholesterol, so blood cholesterol, can be small or moderate, depending on where someone is on this hyperbolic curve. The relationship, unlike saturated fat and LDL cholesterol, the relationship with dietary cholesterol and LDL cholesterol is non-linear. The curve is not linear. The risk actually caps out in a diminishing returns fashion. So how much eating dietary cholesterol impacts ApoB and LDL? This depends on someone's baseline dietary cholesterol intake. For example, if someone's already eating 500 milligrams of dietary cholesterol a day, going from two eggs to zero eggs per day is probably not going to impact their ApoB much. But if that same person drops from 500 milligrams of dietary cholesterol to zero milligrams of dietary cholesterol per day, they'll likely see a more robust change in their ApoB. Remember that dietary cholesterol only exists in animal products. There is no dietary cholesterol in plant foods. In a randomized crossover trial by Ron Krauss, they actually evaluated the impact of dietary cholesterol on lipids while saturated fat was controlled for. So it was a randomized crossover study. They took generally healthy men and women from the ages of 21 to 65, and they were randomly assigned to one of two parallel arms, either high or low saturated fat. And within each, they were allocated to either the red meat, white meat, or non-meat, which was a plant protein diet was consumed for four weeks each in random order. The primary outcomes they were looking at were LDL cholesterol, ApoB, small and medium LDL particles, and total HDL cholesterol. So what did they find? Well, LDL cholesterol and ApoB were both higher in both the red and white meat consumption than with the non-meat plant protein arm. And this was independent of saturated fat content. Remember, they controlled for saturated fat. The primary outcomes did not differ significantly between red and white meat. That meant that whether you're eating red meat or whether you're eating white meat, they both raised LDL cholesterol equally because they were controlled for saturated fat. An independent of protein source high compared with low saturated fat increased LDL cholesterol and ApoB. So where did they see the lowest LDL and ApoB? This was observed in the plant-based, non-meat, low-saturated fat arm. But what's important to note here as I mentioned before, is that saturated fat was controlled for across all three groups. So what was likely the major factor at play resulting in higher ApoB in the red meat and white meat arm compared with the plant protein arm? It was dietary cholesterol. So where does reducing or eliminating dietary cholesterol fall into the hierarchy of dietary changes for lipid lowering? Good question. 
The answer is nuance. It actually depends on the individual. Elimination of trans fats and saturated fat reduction, these both would be more important than dietary cholesterol reduction for LDL cholesterol lowering. But that doesn't mean that dietary cholesterol doesn't have an impact on your lipids at all. It actually does raise serum LDL cholesterol levels. But by how much depends on the individual and baseline cholesterol intake. Keep in mind that dietary cholesterol and blood cholesterol response curve is hyperbolic, and the plateau happens pretty early in the relationship. Our 2019 ACCAHA primary prevention guidelines have a class 2A recommendation stating that a diet containing reduced amounts of dietary cholesterol can be beneficial to reduce atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease risk. Okay, next up, omega-3s. Now, this will be just a brief overview of omega-3s. They really deserve their own episode with Kevin Clott, who is an amazing expert on omegas. But in brief, there was an AHA scientific statement on omega-3 fatty acids and cardiovascular disease. Typical recommendations are 0.3 to 0.5 grams per day of EPA and DHA and 0.8 to 1.1 grams per day of alpha-linoleic acid. So we want people to increase their omega-3 intake through foods. And in prospective cohorts, this is associated with improvement in cardiovascular disease risk. As far as dietary omega-3s go, in prospective cohort data, when it comes to total and cause-specific mortality, when you look at the omega-3 fatty acids like alpha-linoleic acid and the different quartiles of intake, the pooled effect sizes for alpha-linoleic, which is our plant-based omega-3 seen in chia and flax seeds, they typically show that higher intakes are protective for both total and cause-specific mortality. When you look at marine sources of omega-3 fatty acids, EPA and DHA, they also look protective as well when comparing high versus low intakes. So in general, we want people to be eating more of these. If you look at the median energy intake, you're actually comparing relatively small differences. And remember, the studies I'm discussing are going to be all linked on the Instagram so you guys can read the primary literature yourself. If you're looking at the median energy intake, you're comparing relatively small differences. So it's really about increasing one serving of omega-3 rich food per day. So increasing a serving of flax or increasing a serving of chia seeds if you're vegan like me. Or if you are an omnivore, having a few servings of fatty fish per week like salmon. Currently, we don't recommend taking over-the-counter fish oil from a cardiovascular prevention standpoint. There's a specific population of individuals with high triglycerides who may benefit from high-dose EPA, which was seen in the reduced trial. But this is a prescribed formulation of EPA only, and this is met for a specific subset of patients. And we aren't going to dig into the nuances and debates over the reduced trial in this podcast episode. But we certainly can deep dive into omega-3s in another dedicated episode eventually. Okay, so... The overall takeaway from today's episode is that it's overall dietary pattern that matters most. And as I mentioned before, no one food in one dose will cause disease. Making small, sustainable changes can make a major impact on your health. An overall healthy dietary pattern can be omnivore or it can be plant-based. It can be pescatarian. It can be low-carb. It can be high-carb. You can really modify any dietary pattern to be a healthful one. The general pattern of a healthy diet is one that's rich in fruits, vegetables, legumes, nuts, seeds, lean plant protein or fish, 
low in saturated fat and dietary cholesterol, low in sodium and ultra processed foods. How it looks exactly? Well, that depends on you and your preferences. Well, thank you guys so much for joining me for this much awaited nutrition episode with lipids. And I hope you guys enjoyed it. I feel like our cholesterol series has been quite a doozy and I hope that it's been helpful and useful. So stay tuned for another cholesterol episode coming soon. Thanks for listening to this week's episode. I would love to keep bringing you all the latest health and wellness information and misinformation to debunk. So please do me a quick favor and leave a five-star rating review and share with a friend. Make sure to leave a comment about which wellness fad you'd like debunked next, and I'll get to the bottom of it. Follow me on Instagram at MD and our podcast page at Wellness Fact Versus Fiction, and be sure to tune in next week.